Mystical experiences don't translate into ethical behavior. I really don't think they do. I think, in fact, mystical experiences often bring people to a state where they feel that they are above the commonplace conventions of right and wrong. My hypothesis is that psychedelic practice is almost always tinged with some kind of religious dimension. Psychedelics initiate people or induce experiences that people have no other vocabulary to describe. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today we're launching a multi-part series, The Psychedelic Moment, where we speak to thought leaders within the modern world of psychedelics and psychedelic psychotherapy. My guest today is Charles Stang, professor of early Christian thought and director of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School, where he's partnered with Esalen to create a series of free online lectures that examine the psychedelic renaissance. Together we spoke about the so-called first wave of psychedelics and how the Harvard Divinity School played its own crucial role. We also discussed the importance of the mystical experience in achieving positive therapeutic outcomes in psychedelic trials, the concept of divine darkness, how somatic practices traditionally bring on mystical experiences, the use of sacraments in the ancient mystery religions of the Mediterranean, and much more. Here's my conversation with Charles Stang. Now Charles, You've created a series with Harvard Divinity School that's themed around psychedelics and the future of religion. So just in simplest terms, I'd love you to kind of explicate why. Why have you done so? And if it's possible, could you talk to me a little bit about your background as a professor of early Christian thought, where you've taught about, amongst other subjects, the development of mysticism in Christianity and how that might intersect with psychedelics? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So. I was moved to host this series at the Center for the Study of World Religions for two reasons, basically. First, the, the contemporary psychedelic renaissance, so-called, although it's very much grounded in science, uh, makes frequent appeal to religion and spirituality, and especially to mysticism and transcendence. But so far, scholars of religion have been largely left out of that conversation, and so that seemed an opening. I'm a scholar of mysticism in early Christianity and uh, the ancient Mediterranean world more broadly. So, so naturally, I'm interested uh, to explore whether these contemporary claims about psychedelics and mystical experience really square with the archive of mystical experiences across time and traditions. I am very new to this conversation about psychedelics. I do think it's important that we try to make the conversation as rich, as rigorous as possible. And that means I think the academy shouldn't turn a blind eye to it and, it, and it often has for its own prejudices. So at the center, I suppose I'm trying to get a scholarly community in the humanities to take psychedelics more seriously. Well, talk to me a little bit about the mystical experience in general, as it might relate to Christian thought or as it might stand on its own. Why? Is that, from a scholarly perspective, important? Well, from the perspective of the psychedelic renaissance, it's largely because these recent studies out of Johns Hopkins University and NYU have claimed, on the basis of some pretty extensive trials, that therapeutic outcomes, which are, it has some remarkable therapeutic outcomes, are correlated 
to what they're calling mystical experience. And they have a particular definition of mystical experience that I've pressed them on because I don't think it's entirely adequate to the history of mysticism. It's actually a kind of a bit of a sliver in the, the whole you know, range of what we might call mystical experience. It's very hard to define something like mystical experience, and it really depends on what kind of religious framework you bring to it. In a theistic framework, like Christianity or Judaism or Islam, mystical experience usually means a kind of unmediated encounter with the transcendent God or source. But if you shift that to a polytheistic framework or an animist framework, mystical experience is going to mean something uh, quite a bit different. There's also the question of what are the sort of affective states? What are the emotional states that attend these experiences or these encounters? And those also differ wildly across time and tradition. Um, I mean, there's patterns, uh, but there's, there's not a single template for what constitutes a mystical experience. And so one thing I really would like to convey to the community of people interested in psychedelics and its intersection with mysticism is that the history of mysticism suggests that it's a, it's a very complicated territory, experiential territory. There's not one summit that you are all climbing toward. What, this is why mystical literature, the archive of mystical literature is so rich because basically it just provides these really detailed roadmaps to that landscape. Yeah, so that's a that's an in a in a nutshell some of the some of the challenges. Well, I'd love to hear about what is the definition that the folks at John Hopkins have come up with that feels like a little bit narrow. They're interested in a particular kind of mystical experience, uh, a peak experience, kind of union with a transcendent source that is felt to be benevolent and even loving. And it's that experience that they are trying to track because they're convinced that particular experience correlates highly with these therapeutic outcomes. Mm-hmm. That experience is among the, you know, the archive of mystical experience. Absolutely, there are those kinds of experiences. But there are a lot of other sorts of experiences. And I'm a little concerned about, so to speak, the selection criteria that, that filters out some of those other experiences which plenty of people have in and through psychedelics or in and through other means. So yeah, talk to me about some of the other mystical experiences yeah, that may not be included in the John Hopkins definition. Well, the one I was pressing Roland Griffiths on when he spoke in the series, and we were very fortunate to have him inaugurated because he's leading this scientific renaissance in many ways. But the experience I, I was pressing him on was experiences of divine darkness. Uh, which can be very challenging for people to experience, right? This idea that in some, sometimes divine darkness is, is described after the effect as such a brilliant luminosity that you can't see, so you only can experience it as darkness. That's a sort of overpowering light that translates into darkness. But just as often you have the experience of encounter with the source that isn't, uh, it's not described as, welcoming or loving or um, embracing. It can be harrowing. Mm-hmm. It can be uh, awesome in that, se- in that, in the sense of awesome, both being awesome and awful. It is terrifying. And that, that is a very important 
witness in the mystical archive, so to speak. We have to be responsible in not only naming it, but also being able to respond to it when people have that. I think that and I've had a couple experiences of divine darkness. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I don't know if I call them divine. Well, not all experiences of darkness have to be divine. Absolutely. Right. Right. There, there can be some very mundane darkness that can be harrowing and terrifying. Now, all this uh, focus on psychedelics, has it given you some insight on your own work and your own thought around mysticism, either with regards to Christianity or, or just mysticism kind of as a, a generalized topic? Well, on the one hand, it's kind of thrilling to see that there is a, a widespread popular conversation that's engaging mysticism. And so I'm kind of grateful to the psychedelic renaissance for bringing that to the surface. In my own case, I think one of the things that's challenged for me is the question of like, what are the means by which one can solicit a mystical experience? But what I mean by that is, what are, the, what are the means or mechanisms or practices that can bring these sorts of things on? And there's a prejudice in scholarship, and I would say more generally in the Western uh, monotheistic traditions against ingestion of substances being a legitimate means. It's generally, you know, framed as a kind of shortcut or it doesn't really deliver you into the reality. It's just a kind of material hallucination. And, you know, I think I've had to examine those assumptions and, and rethink those assumptions because the truth is the sorts of practices that bring on mystical experiences across times and traditions are very somatic practices. Yeah. Sleep deprivation, fasting, various kinds of bodily postures. So I suppose I'm wondering, well, what bodily practices should be considered legitimate and what, why should these, or what material means are legitimate and what material means are suddenly termed illegitimate. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of reassessing that from the perspective of psychedelics, because of course there's also whole bunch of traditions that have been using things that we now classify as psychedelics to induce extraordinary experiences. And I have no re good reason for disqualifying those. Mm -hmm. And perhaps early Christianity, does that fall into the category of, of religion or culture that had been using possibly uh, sacraments or psychedelics? It's fascinating. It's a great question, Sam. There, there was several uh, generations ago, is that fair? Well, re fairly recently, some hypotheses about the ancient mystery religions uh, of the Mediterranean. Um, so the Eleusian mysteries, for instance. There's been some uh, arguments that they were using uh, some kind of psychedelic substance to uh, initiate um, their uh, in initiate folks. And there's a new book out with, with someone I know well, but I haven't had a chance to, to read it, that is revisiting that hypothesis and extending it uh, provisionally to possibly include early Christianity. The book is called The Immortality Key by Brian Murescu. And uh, so I, I, in a sense, I have to say, I have to get back to you on that because I'm supposed to review this book. So there's, there's renewed interest in the possibility of psychedelics at work in ancient Mediterranean religions. That's the one I know most about. Um, and then, of course, you know, we know uh, quite a bit more about, say, 
traditions in Central and South America that have been using psychedelics for ritual and religious purposes for, for hundreds of years, if not longer. Well, let's talk Harvard history for, for a moment to kind of ground the series that you've created in, in conjunction with Esalen around psychedelics. Could you kind of bring us through the first wave of psychedelics and how it became entangled with the Harvard Divinity School in the early 1960s? Well, I might not be the best person to, to narrate this, but I can give you, a, I can give you some of the, the history. Um, in 1962, a doctoral student at Harvard Divinity School by the name of Walter Pankey, um, and he was under the supervision of uh, thesis advisors Timothy Leary and Richard Albert. Uh, he administered psilocybin to 20 volunteers. Among them was Houston Smith, the great okay. scholar of religion in a Good Friday service. And he did that in order to see whether and how psilocybin might occasion what he called a quote-unquote genuine religious experience. I'm sort of amazed that they did this on Good Friday, to be honest. I mean, of all holidays, uh, the one commemorating the crucifixion of Christ would not seem to be the one that you might want to trip into it's kind of so dark and, and yeah i mean it's very it's very it's very dark right it's um divinely dark it's divinely dark uh so i was a little surprised that they chose that that particular um holiday to try this experiment in any case i think we all know what happened in subsequent years which is that timothy leary the sorts of experiments like this and others they were doing sort of fell afoul of university administration and then eventually the kind of mass psychedelic movement brought down the arm of the law, so to speak. And these antics, whether you think they were good or bad or, you know, excessive or, or warranted, really ended up bringing to a close at least the official, you know, practice and, and certainly research into psychedelics. Mm -hmm. So in some way, uh, modestly, I, I hope that Harvard can reconvene a conversation about psychedelics that is more responsible and a little bit more rigorous than that first wave. I mean, it's so interesting that, that you are doing this as part of the Harvard Divinity School. What with the history, I assume you don't seem like the rabble rousing type so much. I assume you have permission from the correct authorities. <laughs> no, they, haven't, they haven't called me in yet. We'll see. It's a really fascinating kind of intellectual exercise that you're creating here. And I was curious with the, the lectures that you've sort of hosted so far, what have been some of the, the takeaways? Well, we've only had two so far. We have a third coming up. And the first two were really correlated. They were a pair. In fact, they were originally going to be one event and we split it up. So I already mentioned Roland Griffiths from the Johns Hopkins University. We really wanted to foreground the work that these researchers have been doing uh, at Johns Hopkins for therapeutic outcomes, because in some sense, it's their, well, frankly, kind of sober approach to this topic that has helped bring psychedelics back into kind of credible discourse, uh, such that, you know, Michael Pollan will write the book he did on that. So we wanted to kind of give them credit and, and hear from them, because the truth is that uh, it, it, these results, this, these trials are to be believed, and I have no doubt that they should be, uh, they are seeing some amazing therapeutic outcomes. The next event was remarkable because we had 
two people who had participated in the trials, one from the Johns Hopkins trial, one from the New York University trial, and the one at NYU was for religious professionals, clergy, essentially. There was a study of what psychedelics, how did psychedelics uh, change clergy's attitudes. So we had these two wonderful participants. And then we had Jeff Kripal, who is the historian of religions from Rice, and also, of course, the chairman of the board at Esalen, to help put those testimonies in context. What was really interesting about the, the, the testimony of these two women who went through the trials is that they were both very grateful that they had. And in the case of one of the two women, she's really become very much involved in the contemporary psychedelic conversation, but they also were articulated um, the limits of the study and the way in which the experience has complicated the, the framework of the study for them. Uh, so I can go into that in more detail, but in some sense, it was both celebrating these studies, but also showing the degree to which people who had been through them were wrestling with the parameters of the study in the wake of the experience. Hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I'm curious to hear a little bit more uh, detail about, I checked out that conversation and Rachel Peterson, the kind of the climate scientist and Rita Powell, I think was the clergy uh, woman. Yep. I'm, I'm especially curious about this, the experience that Rita Powell had. Did she achieve a mystical experience during the, the trial? <laughs> <laughs> sure did. Uh, she had a rather harrowing encounter with a, I suppose what I would call an abysmal source uh, that was very challenging for her. She, you know, these, these trials, I believe in both cases, the trials are about two, you, you have a pair of trials separated by, I don't know, a matter of weeks. In her case, she did not opt for the second trial based on the intensity of the first experience. Um, it didn't undo her uh, by any means, but it, she felt like I have tangled with something that that's quite, I now need to metabolize this encounter and that's plenty. Thank you. And what's interesting about Rita, who's an Episcopal priest um, and, a, and a good friend of mine is that then that prompted her to start exploring the Christian mystical tradition for resources to hold that experience. And it's right about that time that she and I met. So there was a kind of wonderful synchronicity, which is that she was looking for some way to, some framework within her tradition to hold this. She and I met, and I happened to have done some work on a significant mystical tradition around divine darkness. So we started reading together and, and, and exploring that. And so, and, and she's, that was just the first step in a, a journey that has not come to an end. She's, reading pretty widely in the Christian mystical tradition as a result. Well, tell me um, a little bit more about that, Charles. I'm curious, what kind of readings would you direct someone towards in, regarding Christian thought if they needed to grapple with an experience of divine darkness, as you say? Well, I think it, it depends a little bit on the, the, the flavor of the divine darkness. Well, some of these names are well known. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. These are Spanish mystics, medieval Spanish mystics. But earlier than the figure that I was more familiar with is a figure from uh, the sixth century, a Greek theologian who, uh, his name is Pseudo Dionysius. <laughs> uh, and uh, not, not necessarily a house, household name, 
but he is really the sort of fountainhead of what's called the negative theological tradition in Christian mysticism. And that, that tradition is uh, sort of characterized by a conviction that God is so transcendent as to be beyond all our categories of thought and language. Mm. And so the only way to really encounter the, myth, the full mystery of God is to go through these contemplative exercises of affirming and then denying all the names of God on the conviction that God is beyond every possible name, even the name God. So there's this sort of contemplative ascent at the height of which you have something he calls unknowing. And unknowing is experienced as a kind of luminous darkness. But now that tradition in, in, in Dionysius, that luminous darkness is not necessarily terrifying or harrowing. Whereas in these later medieval Spanish mystics, for instance, John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul, it has a different affective taste. Hmm. And so I was sort of suggesting both of these. And yeah, so that's just, that's just a taste of the, the, the kind of mystical archive, so to speak. And that's just within Christianity. Uh, it's utterly fascinating. What I'm really struck by is how you're bringing in sort of a new tool or a new perspective, and it's allowing people to sort of grow, a clergywoman no less, within their experience of their own experience of religion or mysticism, I suppose. It almost mm -hmm. lends a lot of legitimacy towards the, the series that you've created just by that. I'm super curious to hear what, what is the future of this series that you've created? What, what else will you be investigating? You know, the series is co-sponsored with Esalen. So we're excited to reach these, you know, these two very different constituencies, mm. bi-coastal. And we're very grateful for the support of the River Sticks Foundation. Uh, the series is all online this year due to the pandemic, of course. We will have, I think, three events this semester. I'm hoping for closer to five next semester. And they're all, of course, open to the public with registration, whatnot. Uh, the next event is uh, on the 18th, and it's called Sisters of the Psychedelic Revolution. And that's a bit of a, we're taking a bit of a turn with this event because we're really going back to that first wave of psychedelic uh, fervor. But we're trying to get out of the standard narrative, which I'm afraid even Michael Pollan falls into in uh, that uh, wonderful book of his, How to Change Your Mind which is to tell the story largely through a fairly familiar cast of white guys. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I'm attempting to with this series to get out of that, that perspective. It's not that the standard white guys don't have great contributions, yourself and myself probably included, but it's more like there's a whole host of players and the question of spotlighting those people, the, the question of accessibility for all with this exciting sort of new set of tools it's really an important thing to to deepen. So I, li I like the sound of Sisters of the Psychedelic Revolution. Who, who will it focus on? Uh, Lenny Sinclair and Jeannie Parker, who are two uh, women from Michigan who were part of a pretty vibrant sort of psychedelic and highly politicized movement uh, that's new to me. I didn't know much about them. The, the center is hosting a postdoctoral fellow this year by the name of Christian Greer, 
and he proposed this topic to me and I leapt at it. And so he's really going to be asking the questions. It's essentially, he's going to be in conversation with these two women. That I think will be, will be exciting and, and an important chapter in revising the history of the first wave of psychedelic fervor. Uh, and beyond that, Sam, well, that it's very much under construction. I can, I can give you some news about what I think is going to happen in the spring. Some of it's more firm than others. But there's a lot of interest in what's being called psychedelic chaplaincy. How do you sort of attend to people who are going through psychedelic experiences? What kind of training is appropriate? to be a guide or a chaplain. And I believe the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley has invested in this idea of psychedelic chaplaincy. Of course they um, did. Of course, right. And uh, the, what is it, the Center for Integral Studies uh, in San Francisco. I believe they have a certificate now in psychedelic chaplaincy. Okay. Uh, so we're going to have a panel exploring the, the, the present and future of that idea, psychedelic chaplaincy. Mm -hmm. And I know the River Sticks Foundation is quite interested in that topic too. So, so that's one. Um, I'm going to indulge my own nerdy interests and host a panel about psychedelics in the ancient world to try to get at that question you were um, asking earlier about early Christianity and the, the ancient mystery religions. I'm interested in psychedelics in the uh, African-American community and you know, what's that story? Because that is also one that you don't hear much about in the standard histories of uh, psychedelic fervor, whether either the first or the second wave. Vis-a-vis -vis religious uh, or Christian experience or simply uh, within the African-American yeah, community? Cer I certainly wouldn't contain it to the, the Christian envelope. You know, I think one thing I'm finding is that it's you come across really strongly convicted psychedelic culture. It almost always has some religious dimension to it. Uh, that's that's my hypothesis. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Say that again for me because I'm I'm still sort of uh, I want to hear that again. Um, I, th I I think my hypothesis is that psychedelic practice is almost always tinged with some kind of religious dimension uh, or spiritual dimension. And, you know, people often will say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with my religion or having to do with religion, but it, it makes me more spiritual. That whole distinction between religion and spirituality is itself a fairly recent one that we can talk more about. But in any case, I, I actually think that the, the psychedelic researchers who are connecting psychedelics and mysticism, it's not by accident. I think psychedelics initiate people or induce uh, experiences that people have no other vocabulary to describe, to appeal to religion and spirituality. Is it a goal? within the context of, of Christianity, experiential Christianity, to achieve a sort of mystical experience? It really depends <laughs> who you ask. Yeah. And, and so what do I mean by that? What I'm, I don't mean to be evasive. What I mean is if you read, so to speak, mystical literature in the history of Christianity, yes. Even if it's not thought to be something that everyone can or should experience, it's thought to be good that 
uh, th that experience is thought to be good, a gift, a gift of the divine. But mystical experiences are disruptive, and so are mystics. They tend to be, uh, they, can, they can be troublemakers. <laughs> uh -huh. And so you also have a very developed literature worrying about mystical experience and worrying about mystics, how to contain them in a tradition, how to contain them in a community, not necessarily contain them in the sense of deny or annihilate their experience, although there is evidence of that too, but how to contain them in a way that they don't dissolve or disrupt mm -hmm. the lives and practices of the community. Mm -hmm. So, and there's also a worry, which I think is legitimate. Mystical experiences don't translate into ethical behavior. <laughs> uh-huh, interesting. Um, I really don't think they do. I think, in fact, mystical experiences often, they often bring people to a state where they feel that they are above the commonplace conventions of right and wrong. Not always, and not always disruptively. You know, you have plenty of evidence of, uh, of mystics who say, well, I don't really feel like I, I, I no longer need to pray this many times a day, or I don't really need the sacraments, or I don't need to listen to my abbot um, because I'm in direct contact with a higher authority. Those are, of course, disruptive to these traditions, which, among other things, are they are about the governance of people. So the the, the question of whether mystic mystical experience or mysticism lines up with ethics is a thorny one. Jeff Jeff Kripal has written extensively about this, and I agree with him that the mystical, as he puts it, the mystical is not the ethical. I think there's some growing evidence to to support that. I mean, there's almost a, an informal thesis among the psychedelic community that, okay, if only we could just get the Republican Party to, to trip on acid, if only we could put, you know, something in the water to make people have these mystical experiences, it would connect them with, say, the oneness of all things, or it would connect us with the importance of the, the climate change, how we are connected and to the earth and we will die if the earth suffers. I mean, these aren't really complex uh, uh, issues, but sometimes you need a kind of a zinger of a cattle prod in order to wake people up, right? But there are also scholars who are studying the, the, the psychedelic movement who are attesting to the fact that there's people within the modern white supremacist party who are psychedelic enthusiasts, and it's shown oh. no sign of changing their mind. It's a pretty fascinating uh, a point that, that, that you bring up, whether the mystical experience can occasion a more ethical person. I, I would guess, though, that experiencing the mystical would draw one into the faith a little bit more deeply. Like myself, I, am, uh, I grew up Jewish, but sort of moved over to the agnostic or atheist side simply because the experience of the religion didn't engage me in a somatic or core level. There just wasn't that much there for me. I'm curious too about modes. Like let's say that the, the average person's not uh, engaging in, in psychedelics. How would one reach the, the mystical experience within uh, a religion like Christianity? Well, <clears throat> you run into a pretty fundamental tension which is, is this something you can bring on 
through practices, or is this something that is gratuitous? It's a gift. It's it's grace. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that's a that's a debate within the tradition. It's also a debate. I think it's a debate within um, many of these traditions. Certainly, the monotheistic traditions. But it's an acute one in Christianity. So now, having said that, what are the kinds of practices that bring this on? I mentioned some of them before as very somatic things like the early monks, uh, sleep deprivation, fasting, meditation, singing or chanting. In this case, they sing the Psalms, meditation on scripture. And that I want to underscore because there's actually a really interesting testimony to the fact that reading and writing are modes of bringing on mystical experience. There's also those who say that actually um, church, there's so-called so church mystics. Yeah. Because everything I just said is, are, are fairly individual, even you know, practices that in some cases a monk will perform in his cell. But there's church mystics who think that actually the Eucharist is a scene of collective mystical opportunity. If you know how to hold yourself in the Eucharist and interpret all the signs, symbols, and gestures, that that is actually the axis of, so to speak, mystical experience or access to the source. So it's not all just, you know, single monks going off and running things. There, there, there are forms of cellular or communal mysticism, too. Mm -hmm. Well, Charles, I, I kind of want to ask you a general question. I don't know if you'll find this interesting or not. It just crossed my mind. Why did you become aligned with Divinity School and become a professor within the Divinity School as, as opposed to being a, a sociology professor? Or, you know, why, why have you, why is it so interesting for you to uh, interrogate questions of faith and, and divinity? It's something of a mystery to my to me, Sam, how this came about. I was not supposed to take this path, so to speak, by which I mean it was a surprise to me. It was a surprise to my family. I wasn't a reader as a child or an adolescent. I didn't have very open or developed interests in, this to in these topics. Something happened in late adolescence where I, so to speak, came online. I was gripped by questions about the source of reality, how am I supposed to live in reality and toward that source? Mm. And I first turned, as I think was natural, well, I should say, not unlike you, I was, uh, I was raised in a tradition that I did not find really satisfying. I was raised in a kind of suburban, Midwest, Protestant tradition that felt like kind of cold oatmeal, did not really speak to uh, any heartfelt questions that I had. I, and I don't know if that was me or the tradition, but in any case, you know, the combination didn't work. So when these questions became vital for me, I turned to philosophy first. And really kind of surprising to me, threw myself into it, sustained myself in the world of philosophies for several years, but then discovered that the world of academic philosophy, at least, which is dominated by what's called analytic approaches, was not hospitable to the kinds of questions I was interested in and really was not very interested even in the history of its own, uh, the history of philosophy. So I gravitated to little corners in that, in, in philosophy, 
And in those corners, it was clear that there was significant overlap with the study of religion uh, and religious sensibilities. And that also occasioned me returning to Christianity and saying, maybe there's more here than my Midwestern uh, suburban upbringing led me to believe. And so I spent my adult life essentially mining the history of Christianity, trying to find the pockets that were intellectually and existentially nourishing. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate enough to make a profession out of that. And I'm grateful. Uh, I love, I love what I do. But there's a bit of a danger in it because, of course, anytime you make your passion your profession, it can be wonderful. It can also mean that you professionalize your passion. You know, you, uh, so, so I am on that razor's edge often. Well, that's really cool. No, it's interesting. I, I like getting that perspective and I like that you brought up the term mystery and it kind of, you know, it kind of dovetails with the whole psychedelic experience that is it's occurrent for a reason, right? Yeah. It is, it's, it's capturing a lot of people's minds right now because I think it, it affects people in ways that are unpredictable. It's sort of, at least in my life has given me a pers perspective that I had no idea I was signing up for. And then once, once felt or once seen, couldn't be unseen. And I believe that the experience of mysticism, the experience of religious thought too, is about surrendering in some ways to a worldview that's larger than one's own. So what you're doing with your series, mashing these two worlds together, it seems really um, necessary, particularly, as you said, kind of in response to these trials, which are so regimented and so um, kind of rigidly inscribed around the uh, scientific aspect. I think there's also something to be gained for the Esalen community because the Esalen community, as far as I can tell, you know, Esalen's really been taking a lead on psychedelics for a long time. And I don't just mean the early days uh, with the wild practice. I mean, more recently, they've been absolutely catalytic in the psychedelic renaissance. That is also documented in Michael Pollan's book. But the Esalen community, I think it's fair to say, leans towards the experiential. And if I dare say even rests sometimes in some of the platitudes of the experiential. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, hey, every community has its platitudes and every community has its prejudices right. and that sort of thing. So I don't mean to, to I, single out that community, but I mean, and I don't mean just people on campus, I mean the whole, the, all the people have been touched by the kind of thing Esalen does, and that includes me, by the way. So my hope is that by partnering with Esalen, we, the center can convince scholars to take psychedelics and maybe the experiential dimension of psychedelics more seriously, and Esalen can convince some of the, the uh, some of its constituents who are already convinced of the experiential enormity of psychedelics to take some of these more scholarly or historical questions seriously too. Even the critical ones that, that psychedelics are only deepened by partnering with scholars, uh, including skeptical scholars. I really do feel like if the psychedelic conversation is going to mature and it is maturing, it is definitely maturing, but if it's going to continue to mature, it has to accommodate 
skeptics, and critics. Mm -hmm. It has to be able to meet those, not dismiss them, not avoid them. And also, it needs to recognize that if it's going to make claims about the mystical, then it's beholden to knowing something about the history of mysticism and the history of religions that have held mystical practice. So in some sense, I want the scholars on the East Coast to get a little bit more experience and I want some of the experiencers on the West Coast to you know, go back to school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and hopefully Harvard Divinity School. It doesn't get much, much higher than that. Charles Stang, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I wonder if, to bring us out of this discussion, you could recommend one of the books that, that you've written. You are the author of, of several books about uh, mysticism. If you could uh, speak to one that could be useful for our, our, our viewers. Sure. I would recommend my most recent book, which is called Our Divine Devil, which is a, it's an attempt to reckon with this phenomenon in ancient religion, ancient Mediterranean religion, this idea that each individual has a divine alter ego, a divine counterpart, a divine double, and that what it means to be initiated into the mystical path, so to speak, or the path of becoming ever more like the divine is that you have to meet this divine double and then enter into a kind of negotiated dance with this divine double. So you see this really prominently in the early centuries of the first millennium in Christianity, in uh, Manichaeism, it's a religion that is now extinct, and Neoplatonism. But the other thing is that once you see this structure of the divine double, you see it's certainly not isolated to this religious worldview that I was mining. It's, it's actually everywhere. Um, it's a kind of perennial structure to understand the self's relationship to itself and the divine. So if you've ever encountered your divine twin or you've been visited by your angel, and these things go by all kinds of different names, uh, you might be interested in this book. Mm, that's absolutely fascinating. Well, Charles Stang, this has been a, a, a super enlightening conversation. Good luck on the rest of the series. We'll all be tuning in and the, all the talks are free. And it's a, it's a great service that, that you're doing in, in partnering uh, Harvard Divinity School and, and Esalen. Well, thank you. Thank you for these great questions and thanks for helping us get the word out about the series. Mm -hmm. You got it. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Terry Gilby, Michelle McCrary, and Michelle Broderick. Our music is by Nico Holloman. We've got a lot of exciting programming coming in the new year including a 10-part series on psychedelics. So be sure to tune in, or even better, subscribe. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution.